And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave Does Podcasts, a Two True Freaks presentation. I am your host, David Weeder, but as always, you can call me Dave, my friends. And this time around, we are continuing with the next installment of Dave Does Back to the Future. My ongoing look at the Back to the Future franchise from top to bottom, left to right, through various time frames, alternate universes, etc. And while the first installment was kind of a necessary evil where we looked at the overview of the trilogy and the ride, this is where the rubber really starts to meet the road. Now that I have a feel for where we're going, we're going to be branching out quite a bit and really diving into the movies, the comics, etc. And if you're looking at the RSS feed, iTunes, or just 2TrueFreaks.com, you will note that this episode is being released on November 5th, 2016. Six decades and one year since what would have been Marty's arrival in 1955 Hill Valley. Now, 61 years later, we are not looking at the events of 1955. Oddly enough, we are actually going to be starting at the beginning of the movie, which is a natural place to start. And to set your expectations accurately, we won't be leaving 1985 in a very immediate sense. We're going to be spending some time here since it is oddly the past, even though it's the present in the movie. But we're going to be looking at the characters here at the onset in some greater detail, getting to know Marty really deeply, comparing him to movie teens of the time. We're going to be looking at Doc and his origins from the comic book, how Doc met marty etc and the reason is this is a great playground there's a lot here this is where we get to know our characters and we get to go on a journey with them following this act so this time around i'm going to start by having a bird's eye view of the first act the first 30 minutes or so of the movie the establishing portion and i'm really excited to start talking about that so if we can just pile in here to the uss point break my windowless van with the patrick swayze's a centaur painting airbrushed on the side we can go ahead and get started So I'm going to set this for October 25th, 1985. All right, there we go. So time circuits are on. Flux capacitor is fluxing and... Okay, well, uh, I guess we can all split an Uber or something. How does that sound? Why don't we just get in the Uber and go back to the future? baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. Take that, you mutated son of a bitch! Save the clock tower! Save the clock tower! Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Hey, Dad! George! Hey, you in the fight! But the only power source capable of generating 1.21 gigawatts of electricity is a bolt of lightning. I am an extraterrestrial from the planet Vulcan. Hi, Dave. Um, we are here at Universal Studios. Uh, beautiful day, and we are wondering where you are right now. And before we dive in, I do want to give a big thanks for the audio you just heard. That was courtesy, of course, from Doc Brown, but primarily from Pat Sampson, who is the host of the Longbox Crusade. 
he and his family were visiting the Universal Studios Florida where kind of this show really got its start. And he sent me that message and I really am thankful. That really made my day. It makes me smile. So I wanted to share it with you all as well. So thank you, Pat. I hope you enjoyed Universal. I hope you drank a lot of butterbeer because butterbeer is the bomb. Anywho, back to the future, back to the future, not Harry Potter. The first act of any movie basically works off of the journalism principle. In a journalism story, you are set out to provide the who, what, where, when, why, and how. So in any news story, that is what is set out to do. Does it always succeed? No, because there's bad journalism out there. They don't bother with the reverse pyramid. Anyway, I'm not going to get into journalism. Anyway, who, what, where, when, why, how. And the first act does so. It sets up the who. Of course, we have Marty McFly. We have Dr. Emmett Brown. We have Lorraine and George McFly. We actually have Principal Strickland. And of course, we have the town of Hill Valley, which is not only just the where, but I consider Hill Valley to be a character in this ongoing story. So I'm going to put that on here as part of the who, as well as part of the where. As far as the what, well, we have the average teenager accidentally traveling back in time and getting stuck there while screwing up the time frame. So we have that pretty well established in the first act. The win, well, we clearly know that we are in October 25th, later October 26th, 1985. We are very clear on that. And of course, in any time travel epic, the time is going to be important. The win is going to be a key element to a time travel story. That's right, I like stating the obvious. So there it is. The why in Back to the Future, why did Marty go back in time, is that he was escaping the Libyans after he sees Doc dying shot down at the Twin Pines Mall. And it just happens to be stupid dumb luck that the DeLorean is there. And the how, of course, is the DeLorean time machine, one of the most iconic vehicles in film. So as we may all remember, the first act opens at Doc's garage with this long pan that we're going to be talking about in just a little bit, and is clearly established that it is October 25th, 1985. And of course, that scene introduces us to the arriving Marty McFly, our teenage protagonist. And while he's visiting Doc's garage, he gets a call from Doc, calling home, oddly enough, to arrange a meeting that night or early the next morning at Twin Pines Mall. This is when we find out that Marty is late for school thanks to Doc's having so many clocks synced up to the wrong time. So Marty rushes to school, grabbing the back of a car and skateboarding all the way there where he's greeted by his girlfriend, Jennifer Parker, played by Claudia Wells. Now he is late, he's trying to sneak by, but he gets caught by Vice Principal Strickland, gets a tardy pass, and later on we see Marty bomb an audition for the school dance. And this kind of ends up being a prophecy fulfilled as Strickland says, you don't have a chance, you don't have any talent, you're a slacker, McFly, you're a slacker just like your old man. You've got a real attitude problem, McFly, you're a slacker. And that kind of comes to pass, unfortunately, with Marty being just a little too loud. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud. Next place. So he and his band, the Pinheads, don't get to play the school dance, at least not in 1985. Now this moves to a great scene at the Clock Tower Square where Marty and Jennifer are kind of talking. And it's a very smooth exposition scene. And we learn, of course, how the clock stopped on a November 12th, 1955. If only that would come into importance later. Now to that end, I do want to mention that we are getting setups roughly every 30 seconds from the very beginning of the movie, up until Marty actually goes back to 1955. Just a ton of setups that all have payoffs, and this could have just been overwhelming, annoying, but it's dropped into the ongoing action smoothly enough that you don't feel like you're getting hit in the face with it. And of course, the first viewing instance, you don't know it's set up, it's just kind of smoothly there. That is something I do want to give a lot of credit to Zemeckis and Bob Gale. Their script was smooth. You weren't getting hit in the face with a frying pan all that often. There were instances, yes. Sometimes the setup was a little heavy-handed, but at the same time, most of the others were so subtle, you didn't have to really sweat it. You didn't really get the joke, because it might take a few viewings to get all those setups. 
From there, the action moves to Lion Estates, where the McFly home is, and we find that the car has been wrecked by Biff Tannen, who is Marty's father's boss. And here we are introduced to the McFly family. We have George, the patriarch, who is just a big pushover pansy with this greasy hair. You can tell he's just burned out. Out of date, even for the 80s, office business casual clothes. And just a big pushover from Biff, who is, I know, his boss, but at the same time, Biff takes certain liberties because of their quote-unquote personal friendship. We also meet Lorraine McFly, George's wife, Marty's mom, who is basically dead inside. If you look, this is specified in the script, and you can also notice that her plate has more food than the others. She's drinking vodka with dinner, and she's just kind of burned out. She's dead inside. This is what she's saddled with, George, the kids, etc. Speaking of kids, we have Marty's brother, Dave, played by Mark McClure, who works at Burger King, has no ambition. Mostly because of the influence of his father, who really advises not to take any risks. Just play it safe, okay? And then we have his sister, Linda, played by Wendy Jo Sperber, who was a great actress who unfortunately was taken away too soon from cancer. And she plays Linda, who is dateless, essentially. She has no uh, ambition. Her mom kind of keeps her down by telling her not to call boys, not to be assertive. This is a family that's okay with sitting at mediocrity. They're lower middle class or upper lower class, somewhere in there, pretty average. And this is kind of how things are going to be for the rest of eternity. Now, of course, from there, this is a big exposition dump. We get a lot of background on how uh, Lorraine and George met at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, how Lorraine's father hit George with the car, Lorraine nursed him back, and there was a Florence Nightingale effect. Of course, a lot of setup here. This is where the heavy-handedness comes in, but it's played out as well as it can be. And of course, from there, the action moves to the Twin Pines Mall, where Marty meets Doc, who has invented the flux capacitor and the DeLorean time machine. And it's established that Doc got the plutonium to run the time machine from some Libyan terrorists. And of course, they have caught up with Doc, and, sh- and they end up shooting him down because he swindled them. Doc, you don't just walk into a store and, and buy plutonium. Did you rip that off? course from a group of libyan nationalists they wanted me to build them a bomb so i took their plutonium and in turn gave them a shiny bomb casing full of used pinball machine parts marty jumps in the delorean to flee and goes back to 1955 which is where the first act ends so just a little refresher there now let's talk about what happens here we're going to talk about the first five minutes punctuated with the amp exploding the exploding of the amp is very very abrupt and very funny a nice punctuation for what is actually a subdued opening It also sets up a very good reveal of uh, Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox. When we finally see his face, he's coming out from under the bookshelf that's fallen on him, takes off his glasses and says, rock and roll. Now beyond that, of course, when Marty realizes he's late for school, his mode of transportation is his skateboard and he grabs onto the back of a car. Let's talk about that. Because how many of us tried that? Not all of us, but many of us. Too many, actually. You see, kids, this is a coordinated stunt. The person driving the Jeep is a stunt coordinator. Marty McFly, as played by Michael J. Fox, is an actor, sometimes a stuntman in there. It's all coordinated with safety harnesses, emergency technicians, etc. They're all ready just in case something should go wrong. When we do the same thing at home, we do not have those emergency technicians. We don't have the coordination. We don't have years and years of professional stunt knowledge under our belts. We're just a bunch of dumb kids, and it could lead to injury. So do not try this at home, because a lot of us are in our 20s to 30s, maybe even 40s in some cases, 
and we're all old enough to know better. And naturally, Marty's descent into Hill Valley lets us reveal the town square, Lou's diner, slash aerobic studio, and of course, the courthouse and Goldie Wilson. It's a smooth, smooth reveal. We don't realize when we're looking at this how important that town square is going to be in the scheme of things. It also ends up becoming part of the trilogy going forward where the town square gives us a visual idea of what time we're actually in. And of course, Huey Lewis's power of love is not going to hurt the scene in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it probably makes the scene ten times better just with that music alone. And of course, this trip ends at Hill Valley High School, which you can tell is, it's not noticeable at first. You don't think much of it. Yes, there's graffiti there. There are iron bars on the doors. The grounds aren't well kept, but ultimately it's a pretty average high school from an older building perspective. They could probably stand to upgrade the building, but we don't know what kind of demographic Hill Valley has in terms of the number of students, number of neighborhoods, etc., and if this is more than one high school in the town. And even though Jennifer, who is really out of Marty's league, I mean, I think all of us thought it, Jennifer is there to kind of watch out for him. Oh, you got here late. Let me try to help you get protected. Let me try to sneak you in. She kind of puts up with Marty a little bit more than most girls would at that age. And even despite that, he gets busted by Strickland, the Lex Luthor of Back to the Future. That's not true. Strickland's not that bad. But he's played by James Tolkien, who has played the exact same Strickland character in at least two other movies that I can think of. We have his character from Top Gun. You don't own that plane. The taxpayers do. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. And of course, the 1987 cult classic, Masters of the Universe. And I know just by mentioning Masters of the Universe, there are people out there who are bleeding from the eyes. Podcasts should probably come with a warning if they're going to cause physical injury. Sorry, my bad, my bad. And Tolkien plays it straight to the hilt. I mean, he is one of those hard-edged, seen-it-all characters. And it works for the principal here. It works for the Top Gun flight captain, as well as the hard-boiled detective in Masters of the Universe. Oh, oh, there we go again. Sorry. Okay, okay, I promise not to mention that movie again. It'll be like that one Scottish play that you don't mention before doing anything because it's bad luck. You know the one. What I'm saying is James Tolkien was born to play Strickland, and I say that because he's played it in several other movies. I'm sure he's got more range than that, but in terms of the movie output that I've seen him in, exact same character. Now, somebody who actually did turn out to be a pretty decent actor down the road is Huey Lewis, who makes his film debut here in a fantastic cameo. Huey Lewis plays it perfectly dry, looking left, looking right at the two people who just look stern-faced. It's played so perfectly before letting everybody know, hey, you're too darn loud. Lewis would actually go on to make a more extended appearance on the Reba McIntyre video, Is There Life Out There? And he actually put in a really good performance. He was also in the movie Duets with Gwyneth Paltrow. Now, to bring it back to Jennifer just a minute, I mentioned she's very supportive. We also hear her quoting Doc Brown. It's like Doc Yeah, I know, saying. I know. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. That's good advice, Marty. And she's very supportive to the point where Marty's worried about submitting a, an audition tape to the record companies. Maybe he just doesn't have it. He's not cut out for music. Who knows? Now, as a young man, Jennifer is the kind of girl you kind of want on your side. She's pretty. She's committed. She's very, very much behind you. She's darn near the perfect girlfriend, and Marty's lucky to have her. Now, as an adult, I start looking back, and I start noticing that Marty gets a little bit touchy. He keeps putting his arm around her waist, which she moves. She's a little bit uncomfortable, and that bothers me just a little bit more than it used to. 
Now, we don't know what level their physical relationship is at. We can assume that Marty's going to try to get to second base if they do go to the lake with the car, which of course ends up not happening. But I think at this stage, Marty is taking Jennifer for granted. He's touching her a little bit more. I mean, she's very clearly saying, I don't want to be touched here. I'm not comfortable with that. And he keeps proceeding to do it. Now, of course, being away in 1955 will change perspectives, etc. But here, it actually kind of really stood out quite clearly that they have a relationship where Marty is wanting one thing and Jennifer is wanting a slightly different version of the relationship. It makes me realize a little bit more that Marty's a bit self-centered. He's all about the music. He's all about what he wants. You know, looking at the Statler Toyota someday, Jennifer. Well, what does Jennifer want? Jennifer is right behind him. She's a very good girlfriend. She's very much protecting him. And I don't think he's paying very much attention to what she needs. That's my read on the relationship. I mean, everybody's read might be a little bit different, but the touching, the fact that Marty's just kind of whining about himself through the whole clock tower square scene kind of stands out a lot more. Now, before Marty and Jennifer can kiss, which ends up becoming a gag, we have that clock tower cock block from the woman shaking the can, and the woman herself would pretty much kill any erection Marty might have there. So, Marty ends up not kissing her until the very last moment, and then for a further buzz kill, the car is wrecked. So, Marty is definitely not going to second base anytime soon. Now, I've mentioned it, and it's mentioned in the film, that Biff is George's boss of some kind. We don't know what they do. It does seem to be office-related. And for a guy with George's intellectual potential, because he does come off as intelligent, even if he's not really displaying any balls, this is probably a job that's below him. It's probably sitting in a cubicle doing not only his work, but Biff's work, watching Biff take the promotions that he should be getting and that George would be getting if he grew a pair of testicles and just being completely miserable, that sort of prison by cubicle type of scenario. As for 1985 Biff Tannen, he's that creepy quote-unquote uncle friend of your father's who notices your sister gets boobs before anybody else does. Now, as I kind of alluded to, the family dinner itself is a bunch of exposition. A bunch. We start with the peanut brittle. Now, the peanut brittle, just to point that out, that is a result of a deleted scene in which George's neighbor comes over and says, I'm going to put you down for a case, and George wimps out. I see why it was deleted because it's during a talk where Marty's telling his father to show a backbone a little bit. And it's kind of a punchline when the neighbor comes over and George just says, all right, I'll pay for it. And the guy's like, yeah, I told you we had to go to one house. So you get the idea that basically George McFly is the town pushover, not just Biff's pushover. Now, I mentioned that scene to kind of put this out there. We mentioned that Dave has no ambition. Linda is kind of held back in terms of her romantic life. And a lot of that comes from the parents, that the parents try to basically keep them on the safe side of the tracks to the point where they are immobilized. Don't try to go for the big reward. Just be happy you have a job. Don't go try to ask a boy out on a date. Wait for them to come to you. Very safe, very passive is the word I would use. Passive. Now, you notice Marty is not completely like that. You do see some of the self-doubt there on the courthouse square, which I was just talking about, where he's whining and it's all about him. But Marty also has the outside influence of Doc Brown. And that's a big piece of the puzzle because Doc is clearly, I wouldn't call it an antithesis to Marty's parents, but clearly the polar opposite in many ways. Doc very much pursues what he wants at great sacrifice. While George and Lorraine play it very safe and just kind of accept that this is how it's going to be and we should be happy with what we have. Because to try to reach for anything more, well, you might lose the safety of where you're at. And of course, we get the Uncle Joey, Uncle Jailbird Joey joke, which is nothing more than a joke, a setup kind of like the Goldie Wilson. They don't add a lot to the plot, but they're nice little wink winks. 
However, this does kind of bring us into the exposition, where we learn about the enchantment under the sea dance. We learn how George was hit by Lorraine's father, how the Florence Nightingale effect went into playing. And it's capped off with this moment where Lorraine says, that's when I knew I was going to spend the rest of my life with him. We know the quote, but I really love Leah Thompson's moment here. Really the whole family's, but Leah Thompson is key. You just see her die inside as George comes back laughing uproariously at a Honeymooners episode, which is another setup in and of itself. It really is a nice piece of acting from Leah Thompson and really Wendy Jo Sperber and Marty McFly just realizing, oh, damn, this is the rest of my life. This is what I have to look forward to. Oh, joy. Now, all of that is prologue, really. Once we get to the Twin Pines Mall, that's when everything really hits the fan because we have that scene, the revelation of the DeLorean backing out of the truck with all the steam. It was used in all the advertisements, and it's really just a great reveal. For one thing, the DeLorean wasn't a hugely prevalent car you would see on the road. It wasn't an 81 Honda, I'll tell you that, where you can still see them on the road today. This is an 81 Honda! How dare you! DeLorean was a specialty car. It was expensive, it was hard to find, it was already out of manufacturing. At the time the movie was made, there was a lot of legal trouble with the DeLorean, specifically John DeLorean the creator, and then to have it souped up with those vents and the fins and everything and the wires, well, it made it actually look like an alien ship coming out of that truck. Something I have to say about Robert Zemeckis and his filmmaking style is that he allows the scene to play out at a regular pace. You know, he's the anti-Michael Bay, where Michael Bay's scenes are quick, they're cut, and they move on to the next next one without really giving you a chance to blink Zemeckis lets it play out you get to have the scene really breathe where it needs to and Marty's slow burn next to Einstein as the light comes up and he sees the DeLorean for the first time is probably just one of the most marvelous shots because it is so slow and we're not talking slow motion slow but it breathes it has a moment where Marty gets to register everything You have a cut to Einstein cocking his head, and then there's that DeLorean, which kind of sets up the reveal to be something more spectacular than what it ends up being. And based on Marty's reaction, our reaction goes up fivefold, at least. We're suddenly engaged in a way. What is he looking at? Oh, what is this that's coming out? It's one of the best, most subtle pieces of filmmaking in the whole movie, because it gets you excited in a way that you need to be for meeting the really iconic vehicle for the first time. And that's amped up even more when Doc Brown comes out of that gullwing door and he's all just eccentricity and energy from the wonderful Christopher Lloyd. Again, I cannot picture anybody else playing Doc Brown. Although I'll confess that the guy in the video that Pat uh, sent us, the Doc Brown impersonator that I kind of reacted to as saying it's not the real Doc Brown, knee-jerk reaction, everybody. I have to admit, he does a really good impression. But that's still built on the foundation that Christopher Lloyd laid down with this character. Once you meet him, you're already engaged. And you kind of, you had a picture of Doc Brown in your mind. And usually when Christopher Lloyd pops out, I have to admit, it's pretty close to the picture I had of him. And here's another thing with Robert Zemeckis. He knows when a scene needs to go quick. So while the reveal was kind of slow burn, Doc Brown is rapid fire, and because of the character's structure, we kind of follow along. We expect that speed. And Doc Brown is a great vehicle, no pun intended, to allow us to really go through a lot of information that's about to come down. I mean, in just a few minutes, we see Doc do the dry run with Einstein, where he sends the car one minute into the future, which in itself does help establish our believability. We're already on board with the characters at this point. You're either in or you're out. You either like Marty or you don't. Doc is already engaging. The moment we could lose you is when we were like, okay, it's a time travel vehicle. Uh, slow, settle down. It's going back in time, but it's made believable. A, it's a DeLorean, which is a rare car, but it is a car. It is a recognizable car, unique, but not out of the realm of imagination. And of course, originally we were looking at a potential refrigerator for a time machine. 
which was capped because of fears for kids locking themselves in the refrigerators, which was a big deal when I was a child. I believe Punky Brewster did a special episode on that. Why were we locking ourselves in refrigerators, kids? I mean, do you remember this, anybody? Anyway, we ended up with the DeLorean, which is believable. We see it in action. With the Einstein dry run, okay, we understand this is a time machine, we're on board with that. And then we get the big exposition. Here's the time circuits. Here's the data entry. Here's how the time machine works. Here's how I came up with the flux capacitor, which of course will be a plot point later. And then we see the time circuits turned on. This was one of the best subtleties. Doc randomly puts in the date November 5th, 1955. We actually see it get fueled up for a run. So we have it clearly established that the DeLorean is fueled up for a one-way trip. It is already set in for a specific destination. And the fuel itself is still sitting on the ground when the Libyans show up. So the DeLorean is completely in our realm of believability. Yes, we know it's a time travel device. We know how we set it up. We know it has fuel. We know it doesn't have more fuel to get back. And we know why November 5th, 1955 was chosen. All logical and moves so fast that we kind of forget the setup after Doc is shot down. So essentially, Marty forgets that setup. So do we, because everything moves so fast with the Libyans, we move into a car chase. But there's a logical reason that Marty jumps in the DeLorean versus the step van that we have next to him. I mean, really, how's he going to outrun him? Oh, we have a sports car here. Maybe I could try that against a VW Volkswagen van. I have a feeling that the DeLorean could outrun it very easily. We get a small action scene, which is fantastic, where we keep getting teased with the speed it keeps almost getting up to the speed of 88 miles per hour and dropping back down. Almost there, uh, dropping back down and fall finally. Bam! With great speed, with great explanation, we saw a setup that was so quick that it's almost like a magic trick on the screen. It's not that we're completely unaware, but it's just so well done that we're not weighed down by the descriptions. Now, in my opinion, we're leaving the timeline for the last time. We're not going to see this 1985 again ever in the history of Back to the Future in the screen, at least. So this is the last of what we're going to call Timeline A. So if that were the case, let's talk about what Twin Pines Mall security would see the next day. We've got some Libyans who crash into a photo booth. We've got scorch marks everywhere. We got a dead scientist next to a box van and a dog that's just a little bit frazzled from everything. What the heck happened here? And why does that guy have a silver pistol next to him when he died? And look, oh, look, plutonium. Good. Okay. Plutonium. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I just got here, I was gonna, gonna, gonna check in, and it uh, looks like we got a, a 409, I don't know what a 409 is, but we're gonna call it that. We got some Libyans over here, we're gonna go ahead and take them in, uh, national security and all that. As far as the cadaver, that is one Emmett Brown, we think he might have, uh, committed suicide, we don't know for sure. Yeah, we're gonna go ahead and, uh, go ahead and cooperate with local Hill Valley Police in an ongoing investigation involving both of our departments. Excuse me, I gotta go catch somebody running away from the hush puppy. They're stealing some shoes. Get back here! Get back here! The thing is, we have to be on board before the DeLorean is fired up. If we're not on board, the movie would have been wasted. We never would have heard of Back to the Future. But by the time that the movie itself actually hits the third act, we want to hang with Doc Brown and Marty, and we believe that this DeLorean can move back in time. The thing about Back to the Future is it has such reliance on the setups and payoffs that the movie would really implode if the first act didn't work in every level. And it does. It sets up everything needed. It does it in a subtle way so you're not getting hit in the face every minute. And it makes it look so effortless. And yet we get these rapid fire setups and exposition. I mean, it could have easily choked the movie out because, again, there's a setup every 30 seconds. This could have easily just been setup, setup. I mean, if you did a drinking game, you're dead. Okay? If you took a shot for every setup that gets paid off, 
you're going to the hospital, so don't do that. And yet, it's entertaining, it's engaging, it's effortless, is the word I will come back to. And then once these characters and concepts are established, and they are, and we're on board and we're entertained, now the movie can fully explore the world of the past, which is its main premise and its main point of action. So it is an extremely successful first act with very few flaws. I can't actually think of any flaws that came through except for Marty being a little bit touchy, but I think that's kind of intentional. Marty and Jen are kind of in two different places. That's a whole other topic in and of itself. Before I go, uh, just a quick note. The Tumblr, Dave Loves Tacos, will keep sending out supplementary material. I'm not cross-posting it to Facebook and Twitter, so please visit Dave Loves Tacos if you get a chance for uh, pictures, videos, etc. Just things to supplement the episode. But it will not be used for feedback, at least not directly. I found that that's not as user-friendly as I originally thought, so I have set up an email address. It is davedoespodcasts at gmail.com. So I'll be checking that regularly. I will have better access to that than the original email, so I'll make sure to respond if nothing else. I don't know yet when an email episode would be, but eventually I will do a full-on email episode. I have some older emails that I want to get to, but of course I do like feedback, uh, good or bad. Just let me know what you think of the new format. Again, that is davedoespodcasts at gmail.com. For now, that brings us to the end of this episode of Dave Does Back to the Future and Dave Does Podcasts. I want to thank you all for joining me, and I will be seeing you in the future. Dave Does Podcasts is a Two True Freaks production and is made for entertainment purposes only. The show does not draw profit from the characters or concepts discussed. All opinions are those of the host and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. The copyrights for any music or sound clips lie with the copyright holders. They are used for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended, as this show most certainly does not draw revenue. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.